0: Back when I was practicing law, one of the saddest situations I ever saw involved two brothers who were in a decades-long dispute with one another over a piece of property. They had inherited the land from their father and then almost immediately quarreled over it and insulted each other and then went to work suing each other over it for the next 30 years or so. Now, granted, it was a very valuable piece of property, Uh, There was a lot of money at stake, but you didn't have to be with them very long to figure out that somewhere along the way, the property took a back seat to their mutual grudge. One brother would send a nasty letter through his attorney or file for an injunction or just plain out sue his sibling, and then the other would respond in kind, and this tit for tat just went on and on and on. Through the years... They probably went through a dozen lawyers and they incurred staggering legal fees. And the files associated with their dispute took up multiple filing cabinets. Now, by the time I knew these two guys, they were pretty elderly. And I kept thinking that maybe age alone would cause them to rethink the nature of their relationship or at least slow them down, but it didn't. They would only speak to each other through their lawyers, and they just kept going. They would send the ugly letters and file for the injunctions and wrangle through the lawsuits, and to me anyway, it looked like both of them were planning to go to their graves, intent on settling the score. Now friends, that's an extreme example, but I think it does illustrate our culture's attitude towards forgiveness. We live in a balance sheet world that tells us, don't get mad, get even. Think how many books and movies are based on that premise. Think about how many blockbuster movies we see every year that have a plot line that goes something like this. A person is wronged, or at least they think they are, and then they plot their revenge and the rest of the movie is them executing their plan to settle the score. They want to make sure the balance sheet is even. Despite the fact that most of us have heard advice like forgive and forget, and to err is human, to forgive is divine, we are all apt to keep score. We tend that balance sheet. We watch over it very carefully. That's what comes most naturally to us, and that makes it very difficult for us to forgive people in our own families let alone people more attenuated in relationships, strangers. Friends, Jesus lived in a balance sheet world, too, where people had a hard time with forgiveness. They struggled with scorekeeping. Even Peter, who was one of the disciples closest to Christ, wrestled with this. You heard it referenced in our our children's moment this morning. You remember it? Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Is seven times enough? Now, Peter's brother was Andrew, so you've got to wonder what's going on between the two of them. But he asks, is seven times enough? Keep in mind that the rabbis then taught that you only had to forgive three times. One rabbi put it this way. He said, if a man sins against you, the first time you forgive. The second time he does it, you forgive again. The third time, you forgive again. The fourth time, you do not forgive. So, Peter took this teaching and doubled it and added one for good measure, and I'm sure he thought he was being generous. But Jesus said seven is not enough. You gotta forgive 77 times, or some Bible translations say 70 times seven. He's not being literal, of course. What Jesus is saying is that real forgiveness has to be unlimited. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to be his follower, you can't keep score at all. And to illustrate this point, as he was apt to do, Jesus told a story, a parable, and as he was apt to do, in that parable he used imagery and terms that people with the time ordinary people, poor people would have understood. In this case, he talked about farmers and the debt that they often incur. Now, back then, farming was a, a very common vocation, of course. People in Jesus' day were either a farmer themselves or they knew somebody who was, and they understood how farming worked, that it was risky. You see, each year, the farmer would wait for the harvest and and hope that it was enough to to take care of them, to pay off all their debt, because in between, they often had to borrow. So it was sort of a cycle. They would borrow, plant, wait, harvest, pay off, hopefully have a little bit to go on into the next planting season. But oh my goodness, if things didn't go well, if it was a bad harvest for some reason, if weather or Disease or pests caused the harvest to be poor. The farmer could end up in a heap of trouble, up a creek without a paddle, as my mother would say. They couldn't pay off their debt. And even worse, in Jesus' day, a lot of people were tenant farmers, meaning that they were farming the land that actually belonged to someone else and they had to pay rent to the landowner, their, their landlord once a year, usually at the harvest time, and it was a big lump payment. So, again, if the harvest didn't go well, they couldn't pay off their general debts, and they couldn't pay off the landlord. They couldn't pay the rent for their land. Now, if the people holding this debt over the farmer's head didn't show any grace, well, then the farmer could end up in debtor's prison. Friends, they're was no bankruptcy relief back in that time. Now, oh, if you didn't pay up, if you couldn't pay your debts, you just went to jail. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus tells the story of a landowner who was owed 10,000 talents by one of his servants. Now, 10,000 talents was an enormous amount of money, ridiculous sum, the equivalent of like $13 billion in today's coin. $13 million. Clearly, the servant couldn't pay it off. There was no way he could repay that debt. So, the landlord ordered him off to debtor's prison. But before he went, the servant came to the landowner and got down on his knees. He had a wife and kids to take care of, and he begged, please, 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 he says. Just let me try to pay it off. I'll I'll, I'll work every day for the rest of my life. I will get you all the money back. Please, please don't send me to prison. And this was a ridiculous promise because there was no way the guy could pay it off, right? He could work 24-7 the rest of his life. He would never pay back that debt. He couldn't do it. It was too big. But the landowner had mercy on him, showed Real grace and actually wiped the balance sheet clean, forgave this enormous debt. Then Jesus says that same servant walks out the door, runs into a guy who owes him a hundred denarii, which is the equivalent of around $3,000 in today's money, and he grabs this guy by the throat and squeezes it and says, Pay up, you lazy thief. Well, the landowner. Gets wind of this, and he calls in the first servant, and says, "You know what? I, I don't get it. I don't believe you. I can't. What were you thinking? I forgave you this tremendous debt, this huge, huge debt that you could never repay. I wiped your balance sheet clean, and then you run into a man who owes you so much less." and you treat him like that, off to debtor's prison with you. And then Jesus ends this story by saying, so God will do to you if you do not forgive others. Hmm. Does that closing phrase sound familiar to you? I know it does. I know you recognize it. It sounds very similar to the closing phrase of our text this morning, the commentary that Jesus offers on the Lord's Prayer. And you might have noticed it's the only commentary that Jesus offers on the Lord's Prayer. He says, if you forgive the trespasses of others, your Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, your Father is not going to forgive you. Clearly, this is an important point to Jesus. He makes it multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew through different routes. What is it that he wants us to take away here? What does this mean? Is it a threat? Is he simply saying, you better forgive or God's going to punish you? Well, friends, I don't think that's a responsible reading of these texts. I really don't. Because first of all, if my only motivation, or at least my primary one for forgiving you, is to get my own forgiveness taken care of, if it's just to save my own neck, well, that means that I am acting out of self-interest rather than love. And that doesn't sound like something Jesus would teach, does it? And second, if the takeaway from these texts is you better make nice— or God's going to punish you, then that makes God the ultimate scorekeeper, and grace goes out the window. So what does Jesus want us to understand here? Why is he asking us to stop keeping score? Well, friends, Jesus asks us to stop keeping score because we worship a God who has stopped keeping score on us. Like the landowner in the parable, our God has forgiven us an enormous debt, our sin, and we could never, ever pay back the debt we owe to God there. God has shown us true grace. And when you understand that, when you understand the nature of your own forgiveness, when it drops from your head to your heart, well, then you're compelled to forgive others. I mean, friends, we really cannot claim grace for ourselves and justice for everybody else. We might want to do that, but if you think about it, that's sort of like saying the whole premise just doesn't work. It's like sawing off the spiritual branch you're sitting on. So why didn't that first servant forgive? For the same reason, I think a lot of us have a hard time with it, because he did not understand the nature of his forgiveness. It hadn't dropped from here to here. He did not understand somehow that he had been shown true grace. I I don't know if he thought he had tricked the old guy somehow, you know, getting down on his knees and begging, he had manipulated him into forgiving him the debt, or Maybe he thought he was just getting a one-off favor, but either way, he did not seem to understand his own forgiveness, and because he didn't, he wasn't able to forgive someone else. He saw his fellow servant who walk by, and all he saw in him was a walking balance sheet. So he reached out to settle the score. My friends, Jesus... The one who loves you more than anyone, and you'll hear me say that again and again and again, Jesus, who loves you more than anyone, more than you can possibly imagine, wants you to understand the nature of your forgiveness, wants it to be real for you, wants you to grasp the reality of grace, and he doesn't want you caught in the endless cycle the misery of keeping score. So when he taught his disciples to pray, he included this phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that prayer again and again and again, you see. We are reminded of the reality of grace, unlimited forgiveness. Forgiveness for a debt that we can never, ever repay, that comes to us from a God that loves us beyond our wildest imagination. And we are also then reminded that if we live in that grace, if grace is poured into our hearts, then we can pour it out to our brothers and our sisters. Do you see, friends, by praying this prayer and living into it, we are helping to build the kingdom of God because we are building a kingdom that is based on grace. And thank goodness for that. Thanks be to God for that. Because this world doesn't need any more scorekeepers, but could use a whole lot more people of grace, don't you think? I'll close with this. One of my favorite writers C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, paints a fascinating picture of hell. Hell, says Lewis, is like a giant city, a vast city that is only inhabited on its outer edges. The whole inside ring is empty. And hell got that way, says Lewis, because the people who lived in the houses at the center in the beginning quarreled with their neighbors and wouldn't offer any forgiveness, and then they just moved out. And then they quarreled with the new neighbors and wouldn't offer any forgiveness, and they moved out again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and this, says Lewis, is how hell got to be so large. It's abandoned, empty at its heart. Because the people in hell don't practice forgiveness. In hell, it seems, everybody's a scorekeeper. My friends, I know our culture says, don't get mad, get even. I know you see people around you tending the balance sheet, and they'll encourage you to do the same but we worship a God who has stopped keeping score on us, who has wiped our balance sheet clean, calls us to accept the grace that he offers freely and then to turn and offer it to our brother or sister. My friends, we're called to be people of grace, to build a city of grace, a kingdom of grace. So let's boldly pray together every day. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then let's live that prayer. Will you pray with me now? Loving God, we give you thanks because you offer us the ultimate gift, which is forgiveness of our sins, and you offer this freely to us. You offer it to us in an unlimited fashion because you offer us real grace. Lord, help us remember this and understand this and take it into our hearts so that we can be people of grace in the world and forgive our brothers and sisters in your holy name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our invitation to Christian discipleship is the same as it has been throughout this sermon series. I want to invite you again to pray the Lord's Prayer every single day. Pray it multiple times a day. And this next week... Pay special attention to this phrase about asking for forgiveness and then offering it. See if somehow this week grace becomes more real to you and you find it easier to offer it to your brother or sister if maybe this week you can take another step towards releasing, towards becoming a person of grace rather than a scorekeeper now you receive this blessing go now in peace may the love of god surround you may the grace of jesus christ redeem you may the fellowship and communion of the holy spirit sustain you this day and every day amen thanks so much for joining us in worship today i'm senior pastor holly gotelli alamo heights united methodist church is a christian community of love hope and belonging for all to connect with us Visit ahumc.org or find us on social media.